Well, good morning. We're going to pick up now with the parable of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25, starting from 31. So let's, let's start with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that we might understand and have insight into what your dear Son intended us to understand in this, this parable of the sheep and goats and these words of his about his return. And we pray that we might be ready, that when we know that he is back, whether we rise from the sleep of death or whether he comes in our lifetime, we might go with him immediately with no second thought, but that he might abide as the, the love of our lives. For his sake we ask this. Amen. Okay, so verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, he shall sit upon the throne of his glory. Now, this is all out of Daniel 7. And the coming of the Son of Man is interpreted there in Daniel 7 for us as the coming of the saints, of the people of the Most High. Now, we looked earlier at the suggestion that when the Lord comes, there will be the clear knowledge to all of us that he's back. According to Luke 12, those that go immediately shall be saved, and those who dilly-dally, the foolish virgins that we read about earlier in Matthew 25, shall not be saved. And this is in physical, visible terms, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16 and 17, that those who are ready will be snatched away, will meet the Lord, and will come with the Lord to judgment. And those who don't want to go straight away, who think they've got to get prepared, think they've got to get themselves right, they're the ones who in the end will, will not be saved. And yet, straight away, there is a huge chronological problem, especially when you start thinking about other Bible teaching about the Lord's throne. He says in Revelation 3.21, how that the disciples would sit with him in his throne of glory. And Matthew 19:28, they will sit there judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And I think that's maybe why there are thrones, plural, spoken of in Revelation 20, verse 4. Now, what is this? This seems to be the judgment of people from all nations, us, divided into sheep and goats at the last day. And yet, the Son of Man sitting in the throne is Jesus with the saints, with the believers. So, it seems from other... Uh, usages of the term uh, the throne and Jesus sitting in his throne not alone but with the believers with him what are we to make of this well I suggest that we don't get too phased by what I would call the chronological problem so when you try and put all these different Bible teachings together you can think well it doesn't fit because how can for example Jesus and the saints uh, sit there in glory and judge the saints how does that work well why I say I wouldn't get phased by it is that it seems pretty clear to me that the meaning of time has got to change and it will be collapsed, as it were, when Christ comes. So the whole business of judgment whereby we each give an account of our lives and he discusses in great detail our lives with us, this could happen in, in a nanosecond, in a fraction of time, as we understand time. The whole process can be outside of time as we know it. Now, if Einstein and his idea of relativity is correct, um, <clears throat> if you collapse one dimension, you collapse time, then you also collapse space, as I understand it. Now, that would mean that all these worries about, well, you know, how are we going to, you know, all fit in before the judgment seat, like millions, maybe billions of people waiting to be judged, 
And, you know, who's going to go first? Is it, like, going to be alphabetical and all that sort of stuff? All, all these questions are, I think, inappropriate. If you're going to be a strict literalist on all this, well, you've got a, a, a mass of questions. But I suggest that the meaning of time has got to be changed. And I have given it in my notes uh, a number of reasons for thinking that. But I'll just give you the, uh, the conclusion, as it were, uh, ahead of time. Now, before him, 32, shall be gathered all nations, and I suggest that the judgment is not of nations, like, you know, the British go to the left-hand side and the Russians go to the right and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, what I'm saying is that you've got to read in an ellipsis there, people from all nations, and this is an individual judgment. You did this, you did not do that. And then they go away into the kingdom or to destruction. And I don't think that that can be on any other than a personal, on a personal basis. So then, before it, the Son of Man shall be gathered these people from all nations. And the idea of gathering is very common in Matthew uh, and throughout really the New Testament, that there will be a gathering both to condemnation and a gathering to judgment, uh, to, uh, to, to salvation. John 15, men gather the cut-off branches and cast them into the fire. Gather them here and slay them before me, Luke 19:27. And yet right now the gathering is going on. The net is gathering all kinds of fish. There are other sheep that are to be gathered into the fold, John 10:16. This is all the same word. So our first steps in responding to the call of Christ are in fact our first steps towards judgment. And of course the, the Lord uses that pretty strongly when he, he's saying that seeing you're on your way to judgment, make sure that as you go there, as you're on the way to the courthouse, you get right with your brother and forgive him if that's the issue. Just get right with your brother by the time you get there. So we are on our way to judgment. You can imagine if the Lord comes right now and we gather, you've got to go to judgment, uh, well, actually, that same intensity of feeling that you would have in that case is our intensity of feeling now, because you're on your way now. And you've made your first steps there when you first responded. Now, this idea of gathering is played on, I think, by the Lord throughout this, um, throughout this chapter, because the man with the one talent says that you look for a harvest, you gather where you didn't straw, and this is the same word. He's saying, look, you're unreasonable. You expect people to give an account to you, um, you gather them to judgment, when you gave them no basis upon which to, to bring forth a harvest. And of course that's not true. The Lord operates a principle of knowledge making responsible to his judgment. And so therefore I suggest that this is his answer to the one talent, that look, yes, people shall be gathered, but they sh the people who shall be gathered are those who call me Lord and those who have had the opportunity to, to do good or evil in their lives. And later on, we're going to read how, in verses 35 and 38, how the Lord says, when I was a stranger, you took me in. And this is the same word for gather. When I was a stranger, you gathered me. So you see, there's a mutuality between a man and his Lord, that if we gather him in now in terms of 
responding to the least of these, my brethren, then he will gather us to him in the last day. So he will gather them together and he shall separate them. And Matthew 13, 49 says that actually the angels shall separate, same word. And so the work is, as it were, delegated to, to angels in practice, it seems to me, at the day of judgment. And yet the essence of separation goes on in this life, because the same word is used in Luke 6.22, men shall separate you from their company. So if you're standing up for the Lord as you should, actually that process of separation from the goats will happen naturally. And yet unfortunately the other usages of this word separate are in, I'm afraid, in the context of argument within the church, within the ecclesia. Peter separated himself, Galatians 2 verse 12, from his own brethren, because he feared what other brethren would say. You broke bread with those guys you weren't supposed to break bread with. And the only other occurrence uh, of the phrase from one another, where it says he will separate the sheep and the goats from one another, is in Acts 15.39, where Paul and Barnabas departed asunder, the one from the other. Now, the Greek word to separate really means to set a boundary, to set a limit. And I think in this lies our danger. The whole point of all this is that the Lord is the judge at the last day and not us. We are not to separate the sheep from the goats by drawing a line, by saying, look, if you don't come up to this standard of knowledge or of behavior, you're not my brother. And this is absolutely prejudging the day of judgment, and really urge, I urge all of you not to, to get caught up in that, not to do what Peter did, and to separate himself from his brethren, from the sheep, because other people said, if you fellowship them, then you'll be out. So he separated himself from them. And he later repented, I know, as many of us have, have had to do in our lives of this, this kind of foolishness that we were taught in our, in our youth. But my point is that if you separate yourself from the sheep, well, who are you? You're a goat. Now, that's a, a fairly uh, major, I think, teaching that we have to take seriously. So he's going to stand the, uh, the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Now, the point is, his right hand. Now, if you imagine the Lord standing there at judgment and in front of him, he puts people, one group to his right hand, that's the, the sheep, and the goats to his left hand. If you look at it from the other way around, from their point of view, that's the other way around. The people on his right hand are people who've put themselves to his left hand. And the people on his left hand, from their perspective, are the ones who put themselves on the right hand. And that's exactly, of course, the picture that we get from his teaching all the way through. That those who think that they are righteous, who are sure that I should be saved. Lord, Lord, didn't we do wonderful works in your name? These are those who shall not be there. And those who condemn themselves, who put themselves to the left hand, are the ones who are on his right hand. And this... I think will be the working out of the greatest paradox of all time in the cosmos. That those who have condemned themselves shall be accepted by him. And that's really the teaching of 1 Corinthians 11 in a, a breaking of bread context, that if we should condemn ourselves, we shall not be condemned. Now, by the way, the left hand, literally, um, <clears throat> in the Greek, it's a word that means the, the good-named or the good-omened. 
The Greeks understood the left hand as a sign of good fortune. So just in passing, the Lord is turning upside down contemporary culture. So he will say to those on the right hand, 34, come and inherit the kingdom. And I wondered if come uh, sort of reflects a, a hesitancy on our part to go in. Because after all, these people are that convinced of their unworthiness that they argue back with Jesus at the day of judgment. And when he says, well done, you did this to me and that, they say, no, we didn't. Now, you'd be pretty, uh, pretty convicted sort of person if you argue back against the Son of God at the day of judgment and say, no, you got it wrong. You'd be pretty, pretty deeply convicted of your position, of your rightness. And what it means is they will be so convicted that... This was not me, Lord. You've got the wrong number. This is a, uh, um, a case of mistaken identity, Lord. And he'll be saying no. Psalm 36, verse 8. God will make us partake of the blessings of the kingdom of God. Luke 12, 37. The Lord will have to make us sit down at the table of the messianic banquet and come forth and serve us. Well, we're not going to like that, are we? We're going to be saying, no, 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 Lord. You're not to serve. He will have to make us sit down, bearing in mind that he who sits at meat is greater than he who serves, Luke 22, 27. So you can understand that, that there will be, it's so imaginable, that there will be this reticence on our part about going into the kingdom, and he's going to say, come on, it's all for real, exactly and beautifully prefigured with Joseph and his brethren. Oh, no, you're going to hold it against us, what we did. No, look, I'm not. I love you. Let's be together. It's all gone. It's all scribbled. It's all okay. Now, of course, the invitation to come to him goes on all through our lives. So many times in Matthew, you read that word. You meet that word used about the Lord Jesus saying, come to me. Come to me. And he's going to say to us in the last day. So really our going into the kingdom is a continuation, if you like. It's on a continuum of our uh, response to him in this life. Come, he says, you blessed of my father. And the, the Greek for blessed there literally means eulogio from uh, logos, uh, those who are spoken well of. And that's exactly what he goes on to do. He speaks well in glowing terms of the righteous. And there we all are shaking our heads. No, Lord, this ain't me. And yet the point is that this is imputed righteousness. And you read Paul's dry theology on one level, where he says righteousness is imputed. This is what it means in practice, that you come to the day of judgment on the last day, and the Lord is talking of you uh, with this logos, this good logos towards you, and you're like, no, this, is, this isn't me. And that is imputed righteousness. Now, come you, come ye, the King James says, you plural, and inherit the kingdom. And they, they reply, when did we see you hungry, and so forth. So there is a public dimension to the day of judgment. And that's why the Lord says, um, insofar as you did it to the least of these my brothers, as if He's pointing out that sea of faces. It's a public judgment. In Revelation 16 it says that the rejected shall walk naked and they shall see his shame. Well, shame is only appropriate in the context of, of being public. Um, and so I 
I suggest then that the Day of Judgment somehow will be public, that we will all see each other's discussions with the Lord, etc. And that will be for our education. Now, as I said, the meaning of time has got to be changed if we are to each see each other's judgment and to behold the whole process and think, wow, what that poor guy went through, what I put him through, what what she got put through by him and, and so forth. In fact, this would be absolutely necessary because if the Lord came back right now and we're all translated into the kingdom without that process, I mean, for one thing, we would have no no appreciation of his love, his grace, etc. for ourselves. You wouldn't perceive how his hand was there in grace throughout your life. And you also would have difficulty in relating to your brethren. What, she's here? But no, 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 no. Oh, hang, I've got to live forever with him? Well, if you see his or her judgment process, then you will just cheer them on in the last day when they, they finally go into the kingdom, uh, and, and then you will understand. Without that, uh, you know, we couldn't have, I think, a meaningful kingdom. So the day of judgment is for our benefit. It's not that God is lacking in information and needs to gather all this together. He knows from the beginning of the world. So then, this kingdom is prepared for you. Now, we prepare ourselves. His wife has prepared herself. Same word, made herself ready, King James says. Uh, Luke 12, that servant who prepared not himself. And yet, we're told that God is the one preparing us for the kingdom. So, it, it sort of dovetails nicely that we prepare ourselves and he prepares us. John the Baptist came to prepare that way. Jesus says, I'm going away, John 14, to prepare a place for you. So then we each have a specific and unique role in eternity that is being prepared right now. We are being prepared, 2 Timothy 2.21, prepared unto good works which we will eternally do. This preparation is going on right now. And it was prepared, we're told, from the foundation of the world. Now, although, of course, it required things like the Lord to go and prepare a place for us in his death on the cross, the whole idea, the whole hope that God had for you and for me, that unique role, that unique room in the, in the temple, alluding, I think, to the priest's little personal rooms around the temple, and the Lord says, I'm going uh, to the Father's house to prepare a place for you, an abiding place, a, a workplace. Uh, that's what it's alluding to. From the foundation of the world, and I, I wondered whether, if this is all going to be so unique for each of us, whether the point is that our unique genetic structure, which has been, if you like, prepared through our ancestry right back to the foundation of the world, that that was all specifically overseen by God to make us into the men and women that we are now with our unique pattern that we have, our unique DNA, our unique personality, because we shall fulfill a specific and unique role in eternity. And that's a wonderful idea. We shall not be robots, and we shall not simply live forever as in eternal existence, which would be if you like, boring. But we, we shall do something positively for him. And if you are not doing that now, if you have no desire to serve him now, well, I mean, you know, why would you want to be in the kingdom? 
Wouldn't that also be boring or a pain uh, or whatever? So he says a number of things. I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was naked, I was a stranger, I was in prison. What is the significance of those things that he, he picks on? Well, one of the lines that we're going to take on this is that these were all things that happened to the historical Jesus. I was hungry. Well, he was hungry. He himself was hungry. Um, he came to the fig tree in Matthew 21 because he was hungry and wanted to be satiated by even immature fruit on the fig tree, which spoke of Israel's repentance. He was thirsty. I thirst on the cross. And of course he comes to the well in John 4 and he's thirsty and she gives him to drink. Exactly the word used here, I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. That was in John 4 verse 7. I was a stranger. I would suggest incidentally that all these things, the Lord being hungry, thirsty, naked, stranger, sick, uh, in prison, that all of them speak specifically of the sufferings that Jesus experienced during his passion. So I was a stranger, he was treated as a Gentile, as a Xenos, particularly in his death on the cross. He was buried in the place of strangers. That's the same word used in 27 verse 7 here in Matthew. And you took me in, you gathered me. I was naked. Well, Jesus was naked on the cross. And you clothed me. I was sick. Literally weak. He was crucified in weakness. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 4. He took our weakness or sickness upon him. Matthew 8.17. And that's quoting from Isaiah 53 about the crucifixion sufferings of Jesus. He was on the cross compassed with infirmity. Hebrews 5.2 says in the King James. Same word, weakness, sick. So then all these things happen to Jesus on the cross. And so the Lord says that insofar as you ministered to the least of these, my brother, you did it unto me. Now, when you read later on, the, the, the unworthy, the, the goats say, when did we not minister unto you? They sum it all up as saying, we're well, talking about ministering to you, to, to you. And that is exactly the word used about the ministering women who ministered to him on the cross, at the cross. Now, I would say that, but the Lord is saying, look, in the least of these, my brethren, there was an element of my crucifixion sufferings. They lived out my death. If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. His death there, his sufferings at that time, are ours. That is where there is this bridge between him there on the cross and me here in this life. That all the essence of his sufferings comes true in my life. And insofar as it does, then you are to minister to me and I am to minister to you as if we were ministering to Jesus. Now, for example, when he says, I thirst, when you read that in the Gospels, you feel like putting your hand up and saying, yeah, sure, I'll come and do that. Sure, you want to drink Jesus? Sure, let's run around and get him something to drink. He's naked. They took his coat off him. Oh, no, like, like, no, let me give you, let me give you my jacket. Let me give you my, my jumper, my sweater. You know? And 
what the Lord is saying is, yeah, that is what you are asked to do to the least of these, my brethren. And that's why when the goats say, but wait a minute, Jesus, when, when did we see you like that? The implication being, if I had seen you like that, I'd have been the first to bring you something to drink when you were thirsty. And the Lord is saying, but it's what you do to the least of these, my brethren. And one of the themes of this parable is of surprise that both sides, sheep and goats, are both shocked. The sheep say, but I didn't do this. And the goats say, but when did I see you, Jesus, naked and thirsty? I would have run to you. I love you. If I saw you on the cross, I would have been the first there to bring you something to drink when you said, I thirst, can I drink? And I think the point is that for both sheep and goats, that is for every single one of us, because all of us here are ultimately either sheep or goats. There's no third category. By his grace we're all sheep. For all of us here, we will be shocked at the day of judgment and surprised at the degree to which Jesus was manifested in the least of his brethren. What that means is that in this life we must recognize that, sure, I'm likely to not perceive the degree to which Jesus is manifest in the least of his brethren. And the degree to which my service to that brother and to that sister is directly in as much, as he says, is directly my service to him. Directly. It's not that he's sort of manifested in that brother or sister, well, through a glass darkly. He is that person. And there is a, a song that we have. Brother, sister, let me serve you. Let me see the Christ in you. And that is absolutely right. And I suggest that that should be programmatic for us. That should be our credo. And if only church life were based on that sort of understanding that you you know, a hundred people or whatever come into this hall and wow, there's a hundred Jesuses here and I'm running around. Wow. In, in, what can I do for you, Lord? But uh, familiarity breeds contempt and, and we do not, unfortunately, perceive this as we should. Now, there's another thing here with clothe me. I was naked and you clothed me. Now, that idea of clothing is used very often in the New Testament about what Jesus shall do for us. We shall be clothed upon with immortality, we're told in Revelation a number of times, that we shall be clothed in white raiment, etc. So then, as we clothe him, so he clothes us. In other words, we are to see in the poverty of those, for example, who have no literal clothes, my spiritual need. Guy comes to me in this, this hard winter that we have here in Rigo and says, Duncan, I don't have a jacket. I don't have a warm jacket. And I'm sleeping on the street. If I say, yeah, well, mate, that's, I don't know, that's your problem. Well, I need to be clothed. And this is why all this language, as we're going to see of being sick or weak, being naked, hungry, in prison, a stranger. All this language speaks of our spiritual need. It speaks of our spiritual need. And in that man's coldness, and in that man's lack of a jacket, I see, or I am to see, 
my lack of clothing before God and my need to be given a jacket, a clothing, a white garment by grace. Well, the difficulties in giving to the poor, the physically, literally poor, is that I believe for anyone who has been involved in helping the, the, the literally poor uh, for any period of time, there, there comes a, a, a period of disillusion, a period of burnout, in which you are held back from going further by your very definite sense that the majority of people who are like, poor are poor through their own fault. Now, I know that is not what we as liberal-minded uh, people uh, want to say or what we're supposed to say. And yet it seems to me that that is true. And I'm sorry if you don't like that, but all I can say is get out there and work with the poor, and I think that you will come to that conclusion. Uh, of course, earthquakes go off underneath people, uh, and there's wars and, and so forth, and I'm not saying that every poor person is in that situation. But I'm saying that it is true for a lot of poor people. And when you look at the list of things here, that, for example, the person's in prison. Well, I know you can go to prison innocently, as Joseph did and Paul did and, and so forth. But most people who go to jail are, have done something wrong. And uh, why are people in debt so they have to go to jail? Well, because they borrowed money because their kid needed, it, needed to have horse riding lessons and all this kind of garbage. And in all this poverty that you see, you know, why hasn't the guy got a warm jacket? Ah, well, yeah, you know, well, he traded it for vodka or, or, you know, whatever it might be. The fact someone digs a hole and falls into it doesn't mean they're not in the hole. They still are in the hole. And my point is that all those people in their needs are us. That as I see that man without a jacket because he's been drinking, as I see that person who's in debt because they borrowed money to buy horse riding lessons for their kids because they wanted this, that and the other, I see myself. I see my own spiritual need. So if we are to turn around and say, well, sorry, buddy, but get your act together and pull yourself up and uh, no, I'm not going to support you in, in that need... Well, how would you like it if God treated you like that spiritually? Because we look at these people and we say, well, you know, this is a, you're in this position because of a whole stream of poor, very poor decision-making, uh, absolute surface-level decisions. You saw something and so you wanted it. Um, missed chances. You had chance after chance to put yourself right, to pull yourself up and you didn't. Uh, chronic lack of wisdom. And who amongst you would say that that's not you? Honestly, if you can't see yourself in those people, then you are up yourself. You are just up yourself, and you need to repent. I, you, we have a whole load of fail, failure, mischances, idiotic behavior, I'm talking in spiritual terms, behind us. That's our biography of wasted chances, wasted life, poor decision-making, short-termism to the most chronic extent. That's you and me. And the point is that as you perceive that about yourself, so you see in the poverty of people, the poverty which, sure, they could avoid, the poverty which, sure, was their own misjudgment and their own lack of, of grit and their own lack of determination, their own lack of iron in the soul and steel in the soul to, to, uh, to resist temptation and so forth. You see yourself. You see yourself 
And that is the unending motivation then to practically minister to the least of these my brethren. And of course that's why he talks about the least of these my brethren. He's talking about those who might appear to be weak, who maybe are weak spiritually and in all sorts of ways. And 1 Corinthians 8 verse 9 warns us not to make the weak to stumble. So the weak, same word, uh, refers to the, the spiritually weak. And the Lord is saying that even they in their spiritual weakness and the consequence of that, they are actually experiencing suffering, which is my crucifixion suffering. And although they've brought this upon themselves, yet they shall live with me, because if they suffer with me, they shall live with me, and you are to be there, assisting them materially as far as you can, seeing in them an absolute reflection of yourself. And as I say, that is, I think, in practice, the only abiding way that one keeps motivated in the life of helping the poor. Now, Christ on the cross, uh, Romans 15, uh, carried the sins of the weak. Jesus was crucified in weakness for us who are weak. We are weak in him. So then, the least of the Lord's brethren are those, I would say, who are the weak. And he says that when I was sick, when I was weak, you visited me. And the idea, the Hebrew idea of visitation is not really of popping round for a visit and ringing a doorbell and there you stand with your, you know, your hamper of food for the poor or whatever. I don't think that is the idea. To visit means to identify with and to save. God has visited his people. It's pretty clear in the early chapters of Luke. Acts 15, God visited the Gentiles to take out a people for his name. Hebrews 2, 6, what is man that you visit him, that you save him, that you identify with him? That is the visiting, which is in the Hebrew mind when you talk about visiting. And so do we visit the, the, uh, the weak, the sick, or the weak? I say that this word is used about spiritually weak. Yeah, do we identify with them? Or do we say, oh no, you know, he divorced and remarried, so chuck him out. She's been, you know, divorced and remarried five times. Can you imagine? Yeah, and what about you? You who did not divorce and remarry. Yeah, what about your weakness? And, no, go and visit that person. Identify with them. And again, I make the point that any, any approach of a closed table towards the weak is absolutely signing yourself up for condemnation. I was in prison. Well, as I said, you could argue that the prison is maybe the debtor's prison or, or the, uh, the place where uh, uh, bad people go. So yeah, maybe these guys are responsible and, and they, they, uh, it's their fault that they had to go to jail. But the point is, according to the uh, parable in Matthew 18, verse 30, we are all hopelessly in spiritual debt. And we're all in the debtor's prison. And of course the gospel is good news for those in prison. Well, you know, is it good news for you? Well, that means you're in prison. And so we also should understand this, that, that, that we should see in those people who are suffering maybe the results of 
poor decisions and, and wrong behavior, we see ourselves spiritually. Now, to be in prison doesn't necessarily mean to be in a, in a building with prison written on the, on the wall. Um, it literally, it means to be bound. Now, Legion, for example, was bound, imprisoned with fetters, but he was still a free man. Um, so, the Lord's binding, when they bound him at the end, uh, it could be understood as being in prison. And of course, at least for 24 hours before his death, he was imprisoned in that sense. So again, you see something of the cross of Jesus here. And again, I make the point that people in their weakness and their poor decision-making and their suffering because of that, resulting in sickness and in nakedness and being in jail, they, even then, and this is a, a marvellous grace, even they, in their suffering for their sin, are still fellowshipping with the crucifixion sufferings of Jesus if they are in Christ. And if they suffer with him, they shall reign with him. And we are to minister to them. So then, we are to see in those people ourselves. And really, we have to recognize, I think, that <clears throat> this parable is not talking about doing good deeds generally to people. That would be far too simplistic. That, okay, if you feed the hungry, you shall be saved. Well, okay, if it's that easy, then I shall go out and feed the hungry. There you are, did it. So what, I'm going to be saved. And hey, you, you didn't uh, feed the hungry, so you ain't going to be saved. No, I, I think that is a misreading. I think that is a, a surface-level reading. I don't think that's what the parable is saying at all. Because there will be many people who come to Jesus at the last day, we're told, many of them, who say, but Lord, Lord, didn't we do wonderful works in your name? And he's going to say, you know, clear off, I don't know who you are. He doesn't deny they did the good works. I think the, the crux of it is, and the text says this, you didn't do this to the least of these, my brethren. So the, the point is that you did not perceive me in your brethren. And as I say, that is going to be the, uh, the, the point of surprise for all of, all of us both sheep and goats. And the emphasis is on the least of these, my brethren. And I've suggested that the, the least refers to the spiritually least, the weakest, the least in the kingdom that he talks about in Matthew 5.19, those who break commandments and teach others to do so. Now, again, it's used about the little ones which were the disciples, which were those who, who didn't quite get it uh, at the time. The least of all saints was how Paul felt about himself, same word, Ephesians 3.8. And Paul has the same idea, I think, when he talks about the body, when he says that those parts of the body that seem to be less honourable, least honourable, are in fact vital, are in fact so necessary, and why are they so necessary? Because our attitude to them is the litmus test of our sincerity, of our salvation. That's why they are so necessary. The, the little, the least 
of the Lord's brethren are so necessary for us because it is through our attitude to them that we, we don't earn our salvation, but that we show what we're made of. And it is on that basis that we shall be judged according to your attitude to the least. And so once you start drawing a line and saying, look here, in our church in our ecclesia, we don't have this, that and the other. If you don't uh, wear a hat to the meeting or if you don't dress in a certain way, you can get out. And if you don't do this and if you don't get up to this standard that I have reached, you're out. This is ridiculous. You are asking for condemnation. Don't go there. Don't do this because as we deal with the least... So we shall be dealt with at the last day. And you are the least. See in those people who, whose weakness is so in your face. See in them yourself. That's surely what the Lord's saying. And unfortunately he will have to say to those who have not done this, depart from it, go away from it. And of course they in this life have made that decision. Because by refusing the fellowship and to visit, to identify with uh, the least of his brethren, they have not wanted to be with him. They've departed from him in that they departed from the least of the brethren. It's the same word used earlier in the chapter about the foolish virgins. They depart to buy oil. They go away. It's in verse 9 and here in verse 41, the same word, depart from me. So he's saying, look, you know, you did this yourself. Some depart from the faith, First Timothy 4, verse 1. The Lord is not doing anything apart from confirming people in that path in which they chose to go. And he, he says in 43, uh, you will go off into a, the eternal fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, I think he's, he's referring there to First of Enoch 54, which is a, a Jewish picture of all this sort of devil and his angels. Um, uh, and the Lord is, is deconstructing it. He's saying, look, it's not that classical picture of the devil and his angels being burnt in eternal fire. The devil is the flesh, and his messengers, his followers, are you who do not minister to the least of these, my brethren. He's reapplying that language and saying, look, don't get... That don't externalize at all by thinking, ha, huh, that evil devil and his evil angels are going to burn forever in fire. You, you are one of the devil's angels if you don't care for your brethren. If you don't see the Christ in, in the least of these, my brethren. But the righteous shall, <clears throat> sorry, they, they, they shall, um, yeah, they shall go away into everlasting punishment, 46, but the righteous go away into life eternal. That's a very powerful picture, is it not? That we go away into our different destinies. And it's, as it were, a, a, a picture of the scene, a bird's eye picture from, as it were, outside of ourselves. These people going away into different eternal destinies. And we make the answer now, according to what the Lord's saying, by our attitude to those very necessary, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, those very necessary, least of all our brethren.